Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. And it was just a moment ago. Yes. Uh, I told Tyler I was ready to go. He was ready to hit record. And then I took a big bite out of a cookie because that's professional. <laughs> to be fair, that cookie was was looking at me funny. And now it's not because it has no head. The snowman nice. cookie. Yeah. Happy and, holidays. <laughs> and, and saying that, we are approaching the end of 2012. Yep. Um, it's it's been a different sort of year for tech. Yeah. Uh, we decided to to do a year wrap up in tech and um this year, I mean that's the kind of article that appears on virtually every website that has to do with anything. Yep. Uh you know, the news sites have this year in news and the entertainment websites have the, you know, the who got the, divorced, who got divorced, who who passed away and those kinds of things. We all like reading these kinds of articles. Um but um you know I I in going back through things it seems like this year we didn't we had a lot of news but there weren't these big kind of monumental things that have happened like in years past which is weird see I, I look back at 2012 and I see some pretty major stories I mean things that I think of as having the potential to affect technology well into the future uh but I mean you could argue that there was nothing as big as say Steve Jobs passing away that was such a huge story in 2011 that uh, you know there wasn't anything of that sort of nothing that had that kind of spectacle around it, right? Or or, or things that were really fun in tech, right? Um, yeah, there weren't a there were a couple of stories, but nothing again, nothing that was like uh, the debut of a brand new technology that just blew everyone away. Like you know, again, like the iPad when it came out. Granted. Don't art, don't yell at me, people. I know the iPad wasn't brand new in the sense that tablet computers have been around since the 90s. But it was the first one to really kind of uh, be a success in the consumer market. Or or even, you know, when the uh, – I keep sticking with Apple. But they really are good at introducing form factors and making them work in the marketplace. But the iPhone, you know, that, making, that was the big news because it, it created the smartphone market in the consumer uh, world in the in the Western Hemisphere anyway. Um, yeah, didn't really have any of that this year. Um, I, I was going to say that uh, yeah, part of the reason why those were so successful as quote unquote big news stories is is partially because um, you know the PR push behind it and um, the impact that that had. I think that that of course um, escalated those particular stories for Apple. Apple's talented at at, at generating PR. Um, yeah, and and we should point out, so we are not we're not like trying to say that Apple's the greatest company ever. They just have a a real success with this PR push that Chris is talking about. So uh, I want to point that out because I used to be accused of having an anti Mac bias, and I don't want people saying that I know I'm a pro Apple bias. Uh, it's not true. Yeah, he really enjoyed that uh, that reputation. And- I did for. For a while, the one iTunes comment lasted me a good 
two years, two and a half years, something like something that. Something like that. Let's let's start off with uh, talking about 2012 and some of the big stories and some of the things that happened. Um, I was going to start off by talking about CES 2012 because that sort of opens the year. It's okay. usually within the first week or week and a half of January, and um, CES 2012 introduced several different technologies. Mostly, it was a lot of incremental improvements on existing tech. So uh, we saw a lot of uh, super thin TVs, saw a few ultra high definition television sets being bandied about, mostly in the prototype stage. I expect that in 2013, we'll see a lot more of those at CES. Uh, in fact, it would shock me to not see at least a dozen you know, 4K type sets at CES in 2013. But uh those were general trends. Didn't see as much 3D in 2012 as we had in years past. I think the the consumer reaction to 3D has been lackluster. And so it sort of has set that to the side. I mean, you still have a lot of televisions that are 3D capable, but that doesn't seem to be featured as a, you know, a, a, a killer feature anymore. But uh, the the there was a few things that came out in 2012 at CES that caught attention. Ultrabooks debuted at CES. Um, they they've not really done that well in the market, uh, but they are you know high performance, sleek laptop computers, and they they have there's a very specific set of parameters that you have to follow in order to be considered an ultrabook. We actually did an episode on it, so uh, we won't really dive into it. But those made kind of a splash at CES. I remember the Roku streaming stick was something that caught a lot of attention at this idea of a a, a USB like thumb drive sized device that was a Roku box essentially in that format. You would plug it into a USB port on a TV and it would give the television the Roku um uh, feature set so you could watch streaming video uh over your tele over the internet through your television. And not have to hook up an actual set-top box, which was kind of cool. And that's actually on sale now, so that fi- that did come to market. Because sometimes we see things at CES that are awesome, but never go anywhere. Um, and it seems like that is a uh, form factor improvement. Yeah. Um, which which would, in a way, sort of exemplify what I was trying to say a minute ago, which is, um, you know, we'd had Roku devices out there before. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this... You know, it was a big improvement in, in form factors, you know, much tinier than the box. You could plug it right into the side of the, the TV itself. Um, but, you know, doesn't generate the same kind of story as a brand new OMG. This is a really cool thing. You should check it out sort of news story. Right, right. Yeah. There wasn't anything that was so revolutionary as to, uh, to really become the darling of CES 2012. There, there weren't any technologies that I can think of that were so uh, buzzworthy as to capture everyone's attention. Uh, I think the coolest thing I saw there was the MakerBot replicator. You know, 3D printers are awesome, and, and MakerBot creates a pretty compelling one. So, yeah. Now, um, you know, these devices we, we talked about those a long time ago too. We mm-hmm. d- discussed rapid prototyping. Uh, 3D printers aren't. Uh, brand new, but uh, Jonathan's right that the the topic has come up quite a lot in the news in 2012, uh, simply because um, MakerBot and some a handful of other uh, companies have made them 
more, I won't say affordable. I will say more affordable than right. they used to be. They're the kind of thing too that, that has a form factor where you can plop it down on your very large <laughs> desk. And, uh, you know, there, there's, it's starting to make it possible to create your own uh, stuff from scratch. And we'll introduce, I think, it's funny, I think we're sort of in between on that news cycle because now that we have 3D stuff uh, available to us to print, you know, in, in this context, um, it's still kind of expensive. But now we're starting to see uh, organizations um, upset with the idea of 3D printing because now you can go print your own things that may be under copyright. And I think that will be the big story going forward. Yeah, you're talking You'll about... You'll see more of that. It's already started, but it's not really hit the mainstream news. Like, I could see IKEA becoming a big... Um uh, a critic of this sort of technology, yeah. right? Because you could go and you could say, hey, I really love this design of this chair, but why would I buy this chair when I can just print it at home? Or I can I can maybe even tweak this design a little bit. Not so much that you, know, you can't tell where it came from, but just a little bit. Like I, I just want to add this one little element to it. Uh, yeah. That could definitely become a thing. Um, so those were sort of the the items we saw at CES 2012. Again, nothing that really jumped out, but uh, but some interesting uh, improvements on stuff. I also had a great time at CES 2012 because I I got to uh, hang out with some of my my uh, peers in the technology space. So uh, folks like uh, Tom Merritt and Aya Zaktar and. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Will Harris, and uh, it was it was a great time. But uh, I'm looking forward to 2013 to see what what new stuff will come out. Moving into actual some news stories in 2012. Uh, the first one I have is the raid on the on Kim.com's uh, house in New Zealand, the mega upload raid that uh, was uh, done as part of a a joint effort between United States federal agents and New Zealand police officers. And um, we did a whole episode about mega uploads. So again, I won't go too far into this, but that was, you know, that was a big deal. The idea of this international uh, crackdown on someone who was accused of creating a service that is essentially, according, at least according to the allegations, essentially designed to allow piracy uh, of intellectual property, and that that was the the main purpose of the site. Now, whether or not that really is the main purpose of the site is completely debatable, but that's essentially the allegation. And uh, the the raid made big news. I mean, uh, for for a good part of 2012, it was a story that unraveled throughout the months uh, of 2012 where we learned that uh, the agents acted without complete authorization. They didn't have all the paperwork necessary to conduct the raid that they did, so that caused some problems. Uh, there's also questions about whether or not uh, it was even legal for the United States agents to get involved in something that was not a U.S.-centric matter. You're talking about a company that's based out of Hong Kong, and a the leader of the company was re- a resident of New Zealand. So uh, there were a lot of uh, issues that came up about this, and this story has not concluded. It's still playing out. So it's going to 
continue on into 2013. Uh, although I should say we are recording this at the beginning of December 2012. So technically there will be a month's worth of stuff that could potentially happen between when we record this and when it publishes, in which case we'll just say we were running long and we had to end our episode. That's all. Oh, I thought you were going to say that um, we just didn't want to offer any spoiler alerts. Yeah, yeah. We knew about it. Just in case some of you guys are pirating the episodes before we publish them, which would be quite a feat. Please don't try. Actually, here's a here's an example <laughs> of the very kind of thing that you're talking about, because um, not long ago, we also recorded uh, another big legal uh, thing that affected the world of tech, which is a uh, uh, famous tech um, entrepreneur John McAfee mm-hmm. being uh, an, a, a person of interest in a murder case in uh, Belize where he's been living. Yep. Um, he uh, had been uh, in, in his in his uh, parlance, he had been uh, sort of harassed by the authorities because uh, apparently they thought that he was into the manufacture of illegal drugs, which he he, he says he he wasn't. Um and uh, when he saw the authorities approaching his home after a, a neighbor um, was found dead. Um, not far from his property. Not far from his property. Um, he thought the authorities were coming to, uh, at least uh, what he claims is that he thought that they were coming to uh, harass him about drugs again. So he um, he hightailed it out of there, if you will, and um, has been on the run up until um, really right not immediately, but uh, in a couple in days, couple days uh, before we recorded this, in between the time we recorded that podcast a few weeks ago and now, he's been um, apprehended in Guatemala trying to enter the country illegally. Um, of course, the police still say, as of the time we're recording this, that he's not wanted for the murder of this person, but is they want to ask him some questions. He's a person of interest. I mean, he, he had a history of uh, disagreements with his neighbor and um, also has in the past perhaps associated himself with people who are not on the up and up. Uh, there have been a few indicators that would make him a person of interest within the – I mean just the fact that he lived near the guy was enough to make him a person of, person of interest. Plus the fact that the guy's body was found not far from McAfee's uh, uh, Property makes him a person of interest, at least as far as asking and finding out what really did happen. And yeah, we still don't know all the details on that one. Yeah, but of course, um, by the time this episode goes live, it may all be out in the open. But at the moment, we don't know. Yeah, well, Sorry. Of course, um, uh, McAfee's name is still synonymous with um, uh, virus protection. They they uh, Intel bought the company some time ago. Uh, but they still use McAfee as the name for their their virus software. So um, the the news reports coming out about him this year sort of uh, brought the founder of that company back into um, back into the public eye. And you know, a lot of us had said, "Really, the, the guy who came up with the virus software is the guy who was a person of interest in this murder case." That's very very strange. Yeah. Uh, back at the very beginning of 2012, we had the Internet Blackout Day. Yes. Which was in relation to, uh, to a couple of different proposed pieces of legislation in, in the, uh, in Congress, uh, SOPA and PIPA, both of which were about protecting intellectual property. And, uh, critics of these pieces of legislation said that the, the powers that were being given to the government far exceeded 
what was necessary to protect inter, uh, intellectual property and, in fact, potentially went well beyond uh, what any country, any sovereign country could do because th- these these pieces of legislation specifically concern themselves with intellectual property theft that happens uh, outside the borders of the United States. So if you have – let's say you you're, are a United States company and you are you were an owner of a lot of intellectual property. So let's say you're a movie studio because that's a good example. So you're a United States movie studio and you're concerned because your movies are being uh, pirated and uploaded onto servers that are in China. And, you know, how do you, how do you pursue a complaint against that? It's in a different country. Uh, the country may or may not be sympathetic at all toward the intellectual property rights holder. They may not care or they may not, they may have other concerns that are so great as that they cannot dedicate time to that problem. So, SOPA and PIPA were really about trying to find ways to cut off access to sites like that, essentially to to shut down the pathways that people could use to get to sites that were alleged to have uh, uh, piracy on them, pirated material on them. But the problem is this could really cause issues with the way the Internet works and how uh, how you navigate places. Also, it raised questions of, well, what happens if the the data there was not uh, violating intellectual property. I mean, where's where's the protection for innocence out there? How many innocent websites could get shut down? Uh, or not necessarily even shut down. Just the access itself would be blocked to anyone in the United States. Um, beyond that, uh, people who were critics of this these leg- pieces of legislation pointed out that there were ways around it. That anyone who was determined to get at that material could do so using a couple different workarounds, some of which were really, really simple. And so the the argument was that this legislation could do more harm than it, than good, and ultimately it won't protect uh, the intellectual property rights holders the way it's intended to. So it doesn't work, and it would break stuff. Therefore, it's bad. And a lot of uh, websites ended up having a policy where uh, in January 2012, they had um, they would do a blackout, where if you visited the site, you would either get a, a message just saying that the site was completely offline, as part of uh, a protest against this legislation, or it would be a landing page that would give you a little information about the legislation, and then you'd have to click through to get to the the real site. But um, it was a big deal, and uh, the the legislation ultimately uh, was withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. After after receiving heaps of criticism, although uh, I I don't expect that to just mean that the issue itself will go away, particularly since um, the people who were responsible for the legislation are m- many of whom are uh, still in uh, Congress after the elections. They were either either they were not up for re-election and so they're still serving their terms, or several of them were re-elected. So it could very well be that we'll just see a different version of this same sort of um, leg- legislation pass through Congress again. Yeah, and um, another uh, sort of political—it's uh, sort of political—bent uh, to the uh, to the tech world this year it happened outside the United States. Um, again, recently, as of the time we're recording this, um, you know, there's there's been a big armed conflict this year in Syria. And um, just not 
too long ago, um, I guess about a week or so before we record this, um, the entire Internet uh, was cut off to Syria or or mostly cut off. And uh, it's still, um, at least according to my research, it's still somewhat unclear um, as to the cause of that, whether the government actually had it shut off or whether there was some kind of um, – uh, the government actually claims or that um, that uh, rebels, Syrian rebels, had um, cut off access to the Internet. Although it seems that some uh, organizations, probably the uh, governmental organizations, still had access to the, the country's um, Internet connection. Uh, it was actually cut off, not not for a very long period of time, only for, for a few days. Um, but, it, you know, it's one of those things where people were – we're wondering whether or not um, uh, both sides in that conflict would be able to tell their story via the Internet. I mean, that's been been pretty common over the past few years, the ability for um, people who are uh, speaking out against the government in their countries to be able to use Twitter and other social media to to communicate their ideas, to communicate their beliefs, to organize protests. Um, of, of course, that's um, that's been very common, especially with the Arab Spring uh, uprisings that wasn't this year really but um actually still that that kind of uh, activity is still going on in in Egypt as of the time we're recording this too um but um but yeah that was that was a big story this year that also happened in Libya where the Libyan uh internet access was was cut off to some degree um it wasn't as uh, uh colorful or actually funny as the uh, woman in 2011 who cut off Internet access to Georgia and Armenia because she was find she found a cable and wanted to sell the copper in the cable, so she cut it and cut off web access to the entire country. Wah, wah. But um, apparently she uh, she had never heard of the World Wide Web. And, um, so and after that, no one else over there did either. <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, but but that is a, a conflict that appears to be uh, politically motivated as well. And staying in the world of politics, of course, in the United States, we had uh, our our presidential election, yes. and that ended up uh, the social networking ended up playing a big part of that election, and um, not a big surprise. I mean, we've we've seen that in the previous elections as well, but it was again one of those uh, stories that kind of um, caused some amusement in that. Uh, uh, the Democratic Party had their approach to managing social media and the Internet and communication uh, as far as uh, communicating out to supporters, you know, ways to uh, to uh, get the, get out the word to, for people to vote. And then the Republican had pro- Republicans had their side as well, uh, which famously uh, did not work so great a couple of times. Um yeah, as a matter of fact, um, the the Republicans' tool, which was na- nicknamed Orca, um, crashed on the the election day, and both both tools were had a, had similar purposes. They they went about it in different ways. Uh, Orca and and Narwhal, which is the Democrats' uh, software tool that they used, were both designed to get people out there and get people to vote. Um, but they went about it in different ways. Uh, rumor has it that the Republicans chose Orca as the nickname for their tool because they had already heard of narwhal and Orca's prey on narwhals. It's a whale-eat whale world. Classy. I know orcas so, are not technically whales. Got but. a whale of a tail to tell you, lad. A whale of a tail or two. <laughs> 
But um, actually, that's sort of a fascinating story, is is the the tale of the two uh, software tools. But yeah, it's it's obvious now that um, politics, in at least in the in the United States, has been forever changed by social media and, and networked communication, uh, mobile communication, and um, you know things like text messaging and uh, the ability to to communicate to get the vote out. Yeah. Um, I don't think you will see another uh, unplugged election, at least not in, unless the uh, world <laughs> of NBC's revolution happens upon us yeah, and the Internet goes dark. I think Twitter has played such a big role. I mean, just just even if it's not a direct role, whenever any event happened, it seemed like the part of the story that would cover this would be how Twitter reacted to that event. Like, within... You know, X amount of time, over 100 million tweets went out about this particular thing, that kind of thing. Uh, so we heard about that a lot with the election, but also about the Olympics in 2012. The Internet played a big role uh, with the the access to the Olympics. Um, I know that uh, I was not alone in doing something naughty in that I watched the streaming of the opening ceremonies live uh, via the internet by finding a link that let me do that because otherwise I was going to have to wait and I didn't want to because it was a slow day at work and I was hearing about Mr. Bean on the Olympics and I said, I have to see this. So, uh, anyway, yeah, it was entitlement. That's all me. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, the, the internet played a big role in our access to the Olympics. Uh, again, Twitter did, uh, it gave, Athletes and an um, outlet where they could uh, communicate directly with people who were supporting them. Uh, so we see that that it's playing a larger and larger role in big events. This is really I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone. It's just one of those things where it's an in, another indicator of how our world is changing and that we are gradually moving toward more and more of an online world when it comes to these big real-world events um, and relying less on traditional forms of media. Now, that doesn't mean that the online world outweighs those traditional forms of media. That's not the case. There's still plenty of people watching TV uh, or, or reading about it in, in other traditional forms of media. Uh, it's not like the the scales have tipped. It's just that we're seeing a growing uh, uh, reliance on the online world. Yeah, and, and uh, there was a big story, actually, as the Olympics were going on here in the United States about the TV the, channel. The story was in the United States. The Olympics weren't going on here. Right. Okay, good point. <laughs> I said that a little funny. Okay. Uh, yes, there was a big story in the United States about the Olympics in Britain uh, because – um, you know, they were several hours ahead of us in, in the, uh, the time. And, uh. It's just like the British. I think they're so big. Their tea and their five hour advanced time. From here. Even more of a difference on the West Coast. Um, but yeah, the, the, the availability of information, the, the, the fact that this information uh, scores and outcomes of events, uh, news stories, you know, somebody might get hurt or, um, you know, the, the uh, badminton gate uh, story of this summer. Um, look it up. 
Um, it was a thing. Uh, yeah, it really was a thing. These stories were coming out over the internet in channels that uh, we all look to every day and in, in, in places that we look every day and we're thinking, you know, why do we have to wait until prime time here in the United States? How, why do we have to wait until evening to find out these things? And the thing is, it, it sort of, I think it was a lot of, um, a lot of noise, really, because people still tuned in to those broadcasts. Um, but it, it highlighted a couple things. One, uh, it highlighted just how much difference in time there really is between the times that when it's someplace that is vastly different in time, like um, uh, the, the next Winter Olympics will be in Russia. So there's going to be an even bigger time difference for those of us here in the United States who are going to be following those events. Um, and they go, well, we can get this in real time. Why do we have to wait until TV? Well, the thing is, you, you don't. Um, and people still wanted to see those, those things on TV, but it also pointed out the things that they weren't showing. And people started to question the network that, that carries those events saying, why didn't you show this story? Or how come you're focused on this one game when, you know, this other one meant so much to the outcome of the medals? Um, and the answer is, you know, they're showing, they can't show everything without, you know, basically turning it into a 24 hour, uh, Olympics, Olympics channel, channel yeah. and even then there's so much going on that you can't. So it's it sort of, um, it was, it was a big thing for a while among some people to say, well, they are not showing the whole thing and they're not showing it in real time. But I think in the end, it sort of proved that the people who really want that information are going to go get it anyway online. And the people who really want to see it packaged in a nice, neat format with a little, Human interest stuff are still going to watch the traditional uh, broadcasts on TV. Yeah. But it was interesting to see how much the the technology has pervaded our lives to where we sort of expect everything in in full, ready when we are. What I thought was interesting also was that it gave options, uh, not necessarily options that were sanctioned by. You know, whatever entity was in charge of uh, broadcasting the Olympics in any given country. But it gave options that some of us found very valuable. For example, you could watch the opening ceremonies without any commentary. Yes. So you didn't have either in the case of, of uh, the UK commentators, like uh, people talking about stuff that you know, or, or interrupting something that you found interesting, uh, or in the case of US commentators, people who don't understand the references that are being made and are showing their national ignorance of things that I actually know about being an Anglophile and ticking me off. Do you, are you using common, that? There's some commentary there. Are you using that soapbox or uh... a little bit? Um, yeah, no, I mean, but, it, but that was kind of an interesting thing too, is that the idea that you don't have to consume this particular type of of uh, well, not even just entertainment, but this particular co- particular content in one way. Like, there's only one way that you can get this stuff, and there's only one form that you're going to see it in. The idea that you suddenly could have access to streams of this content that would be totally different from what you would get on TV was really interesting. Now, of course, that's not going to apply to every single kind of content that's out there. But for something like a sports event where you may not want commentary, you may just want to watch the, the event itself and that's it, then, uh, it was a, it was a nice option to have. And, uh, that 
I think is something that could be very valuable in the future. Now, in this case, again, it wasn't something that was necessarily sanctioned, but I could see that easily becoming like an option. Like, like, you know, you could, can you imagine you just, you go to, let's say it's a website or a portal of some sort that you could access even on your television and there'd be an option there. Click with commentary or without commentary. And you know, for something like the, the opening ceremonies of, of the Olympics, that could be a total game changer for the people watching it. I think that would be a really cool feature to have for the next Olympics is, you know, something along those lines. Or do you want to have, the you know the commentary from a particular country to be the one that accompanies the the footage and uh, you know that would be I think a pretty cool thing to have at your disposal because well you've got plenty of people in every country there are plenty of people from other parts of the world who might want to watch a sporting event with the 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 people providing commentary speaking in their native language I think that would be a really neat thing to do and it's uh, uh you know, it's within the realm of possibility. So I'm hoping that uh, we see that trend become an official trend, something that is sanctioned and isn't just, you know, left up to people who are clever, who have discovered a feed that doesn't have anything attached to it. And then they broadcast it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, speaking of Facebook, big year for Facebook. Yes. They bought a little company called Instagram for one billion dollars. Yes, they did. And they also uh, had a little IPO. Yes, an initial, an initial public offering of stock. They got to the point in size. They actually reached a billion customers worldwide. Yep. yep. And still growing. Yep. Um, of course, some of those are the same people, but I won't tell Facebook if you don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, they, uh, they, they got to the point where they had enough clout, where they were really kind of had their backs to the wall and, yeah. and were forced to release a, a a stock offering and become a public company. Yeah. they we, Once your company reaches a certain size and has a certain number of stakeholders, uh, in the United States, you are required to have a public offering. You can't you can't maintain that indefinitely once you reach a certain size and you have a certain number of stakeholders. And Facebook was pretty much at that point. So there wasn't a whole lot of choice in whether or not it would hold an IPO. It just came down to win. Yes, yes. And so before this happened, before they, they went public, there was a lot of hype, as yeah. there would be around a company as pivotal as as Facebook. Um, of course – there was the uh, the famous dot com bubble in the the late 1990s. Yep. Um, and uh, people sort of discussed this. Hey, this is a big deal. You know, tech companies haven't had this kind of flashy public offering uh, on the scale of, of a company like Facebook in in years, really. Um, and you know, there there have been some exceptions to to the public offerings, but um, this was a big thing. Um, before, however, then they actually went public, and the stock sort of took off ish, and then, and then didn't, and then started to drop. Yes, yeah, it did, a, and it is still having trouble as it, of right now. There was a bit of controversy in that, or controversy, for my friends in England. Yeah, I was going to say you're an Anglophile, um, but anyway, there was some controversy, <laughs> controversy in the in the sense that. Uh, that Facebook had, you know, it's, it's essentially it had a, a call that talked about its financials. 
And then updated data came out that Facebook found out it wasn't going to hit the numbers that it had projected, which would in turn affect the value of the company. That information made its way out to a certain group of essentially investment groups is really banks really is what it got to financial institutions. Mm-hmm. The information got to them. Facebook apparently uh, uh, communicated that information to a select number of financial institutions, which then could make the decision to you know, sell off all that stock at a higher value than what the company was actually worth. Uh, based upon this new updated information. However, that same info, that key critical info about the value of Facebook did not get communicated to a broader audience of investors, which meant that there were people who were uh, buying up Facebook stock, assuming that the stock price reflected the actual value of the company. And once that information started to become uh, public, then there was this big uproar about it being an unethical business practice. Now, I should state, this is not illegal. What Facebook did, as far as I can tell, there's nothing illegal about it. But it is, uh, some people would call it unethical. Yeah, basically, um, I think th- this sort of hedges on on what is known as insider trading. Um, where somebody who is on, on the inside, if you will, knows something about a company before the company announces it to the public and they make stock trades based on that. And, um, basically this, this is, you know, this makes people think that there is something like that going on. Um, and that is what is in legal terms known as a no-no. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd have to consult a lawyer, but I think that a no no is pretty much isn't that last? Th- yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, you, and Facebook was not, of course, the only company to have some pretty big changes happen. Uh, you know, with uh, with it going public, that was a big change for Facebook. And uh, well, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, whether or not the company can kind of uh, get out of the doldrums. Uh, there have been some some statements that perhaps the web advertising market is going to um, continue to, to decline in importance and therefore the chief revenue stream for Facebook is going to kind of, uh, drip, not, not go away and not even not make money, but it just won't make as much money as quickly as traditionally had been the case. Mm-hmm. And therefore that will affect the value of Facebook. And that's why the stock price may not change much, uh, unless Facebook finds a new way of generating revenue. Uh, or if the web advertising market turns around somehow, that could dramatically impact Facebook's value as well. So the stock price is not, it's not a guarantee that it's going to stay where it's at. Uh, but it is, you know, an ongoing story. As far as other companies go, we saw some pretty big changes. Of, I mean, Yahoo had a, a, a year of changes. In January, Scott Thompson became the interim CEO. Uh, he announced that there were going to be massive layoffs. Um, he, uh, made some decisions that were pretty dramatic, and then there was a, another controversy. Uh, There's another controversy with Thompson's background. It, it came out that uh, his executive bio had some information in it that was what we would call not entirely accurate or made up. Right. <laughs> um, but he he had on his bio some information about. Uh, uh, Degrees that he did not actually hold. 
like computer science. Yeah. And so this ended up uh, uh, prompting some shareholders in Yahoo to call for Thompson's uh, uh, resignation, saying that, you know, it was he's misrepresenting himself. Uh, it's a bad fit for the company. It's bad PR for the company. He needs to get out. And uh, he did resign. And uh, Yahoo brought on Marissa Meyer, formerly of Google, uh, one of the the earliest female employees at Google, the first engineer at female engineer at Google, uh, to come in and become the new CEO. And that was a huge story. Uh, people who were very uh, pessimistic about Yahoo's chances in 2012 began to hedge their bets a bit. I'm not saying that people were saying, oh, well, now Yahoo is definitely saved, but there was more optimism around the company than I had seen in the last few years. Also, she actually has a degree in computer science. Yeah. Also, this story will come into play in our next episode when we talk about the results of our predictions for 2012. Yes. Because she ruined our predictions for Yahoo. So we shake our fist at Meyer. All right, okay, so it turns out that Chris and I talked way more about 2012 than we expected. So we are actually splitting this epic long episode into two manageable episodes. You're welcome. So this concludes part one. Chris, uh, I think uh, you'll agree that this was the prudent choice. Yep. Okay, thank you. That was just to prove that Chris is, in fact, in the studio. I'm not doing this by myself. Uh, so we're going to wrap this up. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please write us. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 